Welcome back to The Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. Thanks to all of you for your kind comments on the shows we've been doing for over a year now. You can listen and subscribe to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan on iTunes. And, of course, you can do that at my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. Let us know what you think, and please feel free to suggest shows you'd like us to do in the future. And as well, please sign up for the whole catalog of podcasts. Whether it's a single-payer system such as Canada operates or a mixed private-public system as used in the United States, the delivery of services has become paramount in healthcare. All the greatest doctors and researchers in the world are pointless unless there's an efficient system for bringing them to the public and vice versa. Lengthy waiting lists and undermanned waiting rooms are the bane of any system. So is the tendency for too much unneeded intervention and testing that clogs up a system like the one we have in Canada, which operates with a prescribed budget. Much has been studied and implemented to relieve these log jams, but there is still a long way to go. Dr. Tom Feesby began as a neurosurgeon, but in the back half of his career, he's pivoted more to the challenges of delivering services. After organizing, fundraising, and managing a number of healthcare operations, he's now the CEO of the Airdrie and Area Healthcare Benefits Cooperative. That's in Alberta. It's a small community-led venture aiming to improve the health of the 70,000 residents of Airdrie and to improve on the delivery of healthcare. He was also recently named to the Order of Canada, and I'm pleased to have him join us on the episode of Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Welcome, Tom. Hello, Bruce. And congratulations on the Order of Canada as well. Let me be add to all the people who've congratulated you. Thank you very much. Well, let, let me start off with uh, you had a successful career as a neurologist. What made you change your focus to healthcare delivery halfway through? Well, it's an interesting question. I had. Uh, I've always been active in clinical care and academic medicine, and my academic focus had been on biomedical uh, research, that is, the experimental models of human disease. But after I moved to Calgary, uh, that research uh, seemed to slow down. I was looking for a different challenge and decided to make a mid-career change. So I took a year out as a sabbatical and went to work at the RAND Corporation in Santa Monica, California to learn how to do research on the health system or what we call health services research. So that was a pivotal change for me and led me in a new direction. Can, can you describe what the, the delivery of healthcare at the time and what you saw as the challenges, why you, you said that there was a need there? Kind of describe what you saw from your, from your previous practice and, and why you wanted to go in that direction. Well, there are many different things you could investigate in, in health services research. I mean, it's a very broad field. So you have to focus, and the focus I took was uh, on quality of care, and in particular, one aspect of quality, which we refer to as appropriateness. And that is, that is whether a healthcare intervention is done appropriately. It doesn't mean, if, is it done well, but it means, is it done for the right reasons, for the right person, the right indication? Because if it isn't, it can't possibly be effective or, or successful. So that's what I chose to study. Uh, the, the quote that I read was, Canadian healthcare systems are ailing. It's like treating a sick patient. Interventions should be grounded on a solid understanding of anatomy, structure, and physiology, function. Well, what did you mean by that? Uh, did I say that? Well, it's, it, your name's on the, on the report with two other people, so I'm assuming you're, you're claiming some blame for it as well as credit. <laughs> well, I'll accept whatever blame is due. Yes. At any rate, uh, there's no doubt that the, the Canadian health system, even though it's much revered by, by Canadians as seemingly part of our national heritage, is certainly not optimum and we have lots of challenges. Uh, the one I chose to focus on was the use of, the inappropriate use of healthcare interventions. In other words, doing things that cost money 
and expose people to risk, but aren't necessarily going to be helpful. That's just one small aspect of the issues relating to the system. Uh, there are many, many other things. I think uh, something that led me into discussion, what we'll perhaps talk about later in Airdrie, uh, is that I think we've focused on sickness care uh, as opposed to keeping people healthy. But that's, uh, that, that, that's kind of the big picture approach. Can you give me some of the examples of interventions that you're talking about? What, which kind of interventions do you think are, are, are hurting the system? Sure. Uh, the study of appropriateness uh, began in the early 1980s with researchers at the RAND Corporation, and they chose to study a procedure called carotid endarterectomy. This is a procedure where you essentially clean out the obstruction in the carotid artery in the neck to prevent stroke. And it was being done willy-nilly uh, without much, uh, um, much, much care about which patient, about the selection of patients. And so they decided to study it, and they found that a third of the procedures were appropriate, a third were inappropriate, and a third were of uncertain value. So that means two-thirds of the, these operations perhaps didn't do any good, nonetheless exposed the patients to risk. That's pretty shocking when you think of it. Since that time, this approach has been used for many, many other conditions, uh, everything from uh, coronary bypass surgery to coronary angiography to, to uh, colonoscopy, you name it. Uh, many, many subject, uh, many procedures have been subject to the study. And in general, they found there's quite a bit of inappropriate use or what I would call overuse. Now I can talk a little bit about the study we've done, if you wish. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what percentage, what percentage of, of these things are unnecessary in, in terms of your research? Well, we studied carotid endorectomy in Canada, too, in western Canada, the four western provinces. Uh, and we found that, again, about half the procedures probably didn't need to be done, which is a, a pretty large number. And it did vary from province to province. But more recently, we studied um, MRI. And we've heard so much talk about MRI wait lists, privatization of MRI services and so forth. It's been... Uh, quite a topic of debate. And we decided to study the use of MRI for uh, the low back. And it's a common indication for MRI. People have low back pain, they get an MRI. Uh, and the question is, is it worthwhile? Is it appropriate? Does it make any difference? And so we went about this in a very me careful methodological way, studying patients from both Edmonton and Ottawa. And we found that about half the procedures were either unnecessary or inappropriate. And you might say, well, who cares? It's just a just a, a safe uh, imaging procedure. It doesn't hurt anybody. And in general, that's true. But there's no question it costs a lot of money. And it also causes prolonged wait times for people because you're clogging up the system with a, half the people who don't require the procedure. In addition, you're exposing people to the risk of finding unexpected findings. Most of the time, uh, this creates, creates mischief, not good because you end up chasing rabbits. You find some odd finding on the MRI and at least other tests and so forth, and sometimes interventions which are inappropriate. So it's not a good thing to do studies which aren't appropriate. In your research, why were doctors prescribing that much? If, it's, if it well, has the results that you're describing, why were doctors doing it so much? I think it's fairly easy to understand. If you take it from the perspective of a patient, patients troubled by a symptom, in this case, low back pain of some kind, no question it's a common symptom and no question it's troubling. I've certainly experienced that myself and perhaps you have and it's, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. So you go to the doctor and uh, the doctor really can't do very much. Uh, do an examination, there's not much to find, symptoms still troublesome. But there's this flashy technique, at one point a flashy new technique, MRI, which can 
image the body with non-invasively, doesn't hurt, doesn't cost the patient anything, why not have it? So the patient asks for an MRI scan. The doctor then is faced with, do I prescribe, or do I order this test or not? What's the doctor going to do? Well, the two approaches. You can say, no, I don't think it's appropriate, sorry, and uh, risk alienating your patient, having a long discussion, backing up your waiting room, or you simply sign the requisition, order the test, and move on because there's nothing to lose. It doesn't cost the doctor anything, and it's a lot easier than the uh, hassle of uh, the first approach. That's why they get done. One of the problems in any kind of system like this, of course, is is when you're when you're the, the, the delivering the services, you see the world through a certain prism. Uh, the recipient of the service also sees the world through its own prism, and they're not necessarily the same. What what would in, in your research? What are the sort of misconceptions that people have about healthcare delivery? Oh, there are many. Uh, one of them is that it's free. <laughs> After all, in our Canadian system, uh, we do have universal coverage. It's not we don't we're not handed a bill when we leave the doctor's office, pull out the visa card, that sort of thing. And that's a wonderful aspect of it. But it does, I think, lead to lack of regard for the true costs of the system and perhaps a little bit of irresponsible use. And this is just a human quality. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody in particular. Uh, so that's an issue, and uh, people argued about that a long time. Should there be user fees, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to remind people of the cost of these things? And in general, in Canada, we've said no to that. So we end up with a system where there aren't many checks or balances, and it costs us a lot of money. Yeah, we hear this all the time, of course. Americans say, oh, you have a free health care system. It must be so great for you, et cetera. And, of course, uh, it's, it's, it's anything but. And I guess what you're saying is it leads people to, to, to think that, oh, well, you know, even if it's a small thing, I can go to the, to the emergency ward and have it looked at. That's right. The, the so, issue, one of the other issues that's out there, of course, is also a doctor shortage. How, how severe is the doctor shortage in our system? Well, it's an interesting issue because I think it's changed a lot. When I when I was dean of medicine, uh, the uh, we worried a lot about the doctor shortage, and so we ramped up the enrollment in medical school, not just in Calgary, but across the country. There was probably a, a 20 to 25 percent increase in enrollment. There's a bit of history here. In the early 1990s, uh, people were worried about a doctor surplus, and in in was, there was a lot of focus on the cost of, of uh, the system, and one thing uh, they knew was that more doctors cost more money, so they decided they would have fewer doctors. There was a national report came out uh, known as the Bearer Stoddard Report, which recommended a cutback in medical school enrollment to thereby produce fewer doctors, which would cost us less. And in fact, medical schools did cut back their enrollments by 10% across the country. This led then, as you might expect, to fewer doctors graduating and then a perceived shortage of doctors by the late 1990s. So <clears throat> in the early 2000s, uh, there was this uh, idea that maybe we needed to ramp up medical school enrollment to produce enough doctors because everyone was worried about a doctor shortage, in particular family doctors. So that's what we did. University of Calgary, we took our enrollment from about 135 up to 175. So this produced a lot more doctors, and nowadays, I think, uh, while there's still concern about lack of enough doctors in certain places, there probably is a surplus in others. I'll just give some examples. Yeah. There are a number of specialties now where the graduating trainees cannot find jobs. Orthopedic surgery is probably the most uh, obvious. So you have these highly trained people they have spent 10 to 15 years in training from the time they came out of high school, can't get a job as an orthopedic surgeon. 
the reason is there's a bottleneck because they need operating rooms. Uh, that's that's the um, limiting uh, step. And there are only so many operating rooms. And so you end up with these highly trained unemployed people. Uh, now, family doctors, that's another issue. Uh, the lack of family doctors was probably the main driver in the increase in medical school enrollments. And many medical schools, including ours, uh, encouraged students when picking a specialty to go into family practice. So that has ramped up the number of family physicians. So there are some places in uh, in Canada now where there seems to be a surplus. So I would say Alberta is probably in that situation, although there's always maldistribution and certain rural areas are always underserved. But the, the, the urban areas seem to be well served now. It's really interesting in contrast uh, with between Alberta and BC because I've read a number of articles recently uh, in the in the scientific literature and in the uh, lay press about the shortage of family doctors in Vancouver and in Victoria in particular. Right. Now the curious thing about that is that if you look at the ratio of the number of doctors to to people, there are more doctors proportionally in Vancouver and Victoria than anywhere in the country. And yet people can't find a family doctor. So you ask, why is that? Well, they simply aren't working enough. They're working limited hours. So that's really an interesting problem and uh, one that I find quite perplexing and, and troubling. Well, I, I mean, I have heard the, 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 this uh, story about uh, doctors in Canada not working long enough hours. Uh, I, I have a friend who uh, does neurosurgery down in the United States, and he talks about his schedule and how he's basically uh, on call six of the seven days, and he w comes in at seven, and he works till seven or eight at night, uh, and his Canadian colleagues don't have the same sort of schedule. And, uh, you know, he's not knocking the Canadian system. He grew up in the Canadian system, but he says it's, it certainly seems to be an issue to him looking at it from the American side. Well, that's an anecdote, and, and frankly, the neurosurgeons I know, and I know many of them, uh, all work pretty hard, so I, you know, I'm not sure that's a generalizable point. But the point I was making is that some family physicians, seemingly in, in Vancouver and Victoria, because that's where the, the, the noises come from, aren't working long enough hours to satisfy the demand for family physicians, despite the fact that they have more family physicians. So that bothers me because I think when you go into medical school, you take on an obligation, two obligations really. One is to your individual patient, which is paramount. But secondly is to society. People who get into medical school have a tremendous privilege. We know there's great demand for spots, very hard to get into medical school. And when, once you get in, your education is largely paid for by the, by the public. And not only that, you're given respect and a position of some stature in society. All, with all of this goes considerable responsibility, and I think responsibility to pay back by providing service. I don't think that's being done sufficiently. You're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode is Dr. Tom Feesby, who is now the CEO of the Airdrie and Area Healthcare Benefits Cooperative uh, in the province of Alberta. Uh, from this, this other document that you... Uh, authored a while ago, but you don't seem to remember having authored. Here's another quote I'll throw at you. It uh -oh. says, healthcare educational institutions must break themselves out of the 20th century paradigm of viewing healthcare safety and quality as functions of an individual healthcare provider rather than as properties of the clinical micro and meso systems within which they function and are a part. I, I suspect this is, might also lead us to, to, to your new position in Airdrie and, and the philosophy behind it. But to, can, can you explain what that means and, and, and how it relates to delivery of services? 
Well, I, th I think the issue of quality and safety, those are system issues. Those aren't so much individual issues. And I think the um, the safety, patient safety issue uh, in North America has been really highlighted over the last 20 years. A, a famous report came out in the United States called To Air is Human by the Institute for Me of Medicine. And what they found was there was a high frequency of uh, medical errors uh, and you know, people getting the wrong medication, having the wrong surgery, et cetera, et cetera, uh, all kinds of things. And uh, similar studies were done in Canada, found the same rate of, of, of uh, errors and problems. So big move into, into safety. And it was decided uh, after studying this that most of the problem was system errors. It wasn't so much errors of individual people. So this has led to all kinds of uh, interventions. Um, one, just to give you an example, is the pre-surgical checklist. So this is a checklist of the key things necessary for a surgical operation. And it's administered by the head of the team, usually the surgeon, right before the patient's put to sleep. And they check things such as which, which kidneys to be removed, the left or the right, Etc. Etc. Are there any any allergies uh, to, to drugs and so forth? So that's all checked off right off the bat before the patient's anesthetized to avoid all those mistakes that could otherwise happen and do happen from time to time. Let's talk a little bit about this new position that you have in Airdrie. Now, for people who don't know uh, the province of Alberta, uh, Airdrie is about seventy thousand people. It's a bedroom community north of the city of Calgary. Um, Tell me why this appeals to you and what it is you're trying to do in this, this assignment. Sure. This is something I never thought I would be doing years ago. Uh, just kind of came out of the blue. And I have to correct one thing. I'm, I'm not the C CEO anymore. I'm now the chief health officer. Okay. We've hired a, a business CEO, which was necessary for the direction we're going for the organization. But I got involved uh, about a year and a half, well, just over a year ago, I was asked to visit with a group of people in Airdrie who were trying to do something for the health of their community. And I was impressed that this was a grassroots movement led by people from Airdrie, uh, businessmen, citizens, the mayor, uh, local physicians, and so forth. And they really wanted to do something, and it was an altruistic approach that I, I found I could identify with. So I decided to help them out and join forces with them, and it's been a, an interesting ride ever since. In brief, the idea was to not just focus on sickness care, which is essentially what our system does, but to move upstream and to work on the health of the community overall. So one of the approaches to doing this was to create a cooperative. Uh, this is much like the Calgary Co-op or other co-ops in Alberta, which there are many. And this particular co-op uh, is focused on the health of the community. So all the members in the community can become members as can the organizations in the community. The notion is that if you have everybody belonging as members and owning the co-op, you might be able to begin to positively have an influence their health behaviors. Also, you might be able to work with the organizations in the community to make the, the, the healthy option the easy one to take. You could also get into urban design and uh, parks and walking pathways and so forth. Many things that affect the health of the community. So this is getting at the social determinants of health, which we know probably are re responsible for 75% of the effect on our health, whereas the health care system is only 25%. So it's, it's an interesting issue that we spend all this 
money and emphasis on the health care system, which is 25% of what makes us healthy, and we don't spend very much time and attention on the health part of the system, the determinants of health, which is 75%. Is, is it, this a kind of a model that you can roll out for other communities? Is this what you're trying to, to build a model, or is this a model that exists in other places that you're, you're, you're copying? No, we're not copying anything, although there, there are pieces that are borrowed from other places. But we do hope that if we have some success with this, that it might be emulated by other communities, yes. And just to follow up my previous comment about uh, the social determinants of health, a paper came out this week in the Canadian Medical Association Journal from a group at the University of Calgary, and it showed that uh, if we spent more money on the social aspects of health, social determinants, we would definitely save money and improve health. Uh, this is a nice d d demonstration of what we're trying to do. Is, is it the kind of model, though, that works best in a community that size, or is it something that can be rolled out into a larger metropolitan community? I think it's a smaller community is easier to cope with in the developmental phase. It's just uh, to take on a city the size of Calgary, 1.3 million would be a, a huge and complex task. I found that Airdrie is plenty huge and complex enough at 70,000. I can't imagine tra tackling Calgary. But I think the lessons we will learn will be transferable, uh, even though I recognize you have to customize things for individual communities. I mean, that's one thing I'm very conscious of. I, I come from Calgary, and I, you know, I might be seen as an out-of-town out, out expert, in quotes, and that doesn't always play well when you come into a community. This has got to be community-led. And so we've got... Um, community leaders on the board, uh, including the mayor and uh, others. And it's it's very, very critical that this be led by people from Airdrie. You listen to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode is Dr. Tom Feesby. Uh, finally, you've been very successful doing extensive fundraising in your career, in this back half of your career. This is something else you've done. One of the innovations that uh, have, has been noted by a lot of people, and you see it here in the city of Calgary, but other places obviously as well, is the putting the naming rights on facilities from donors. Now, some people have a problem with donor names on public facilities. What, what's your philosophy on naming? Uh, I'm very in favor, much in favor of it. I, I realize that uh, it's easy to be skeptical about these things. We see the name of the Saddle Dome change from time to time with different sponsors. Uh, but in terms of universities and faculties, such as business schools or law schools or medical schools or whatever, there's actually been a long history of naming. I mean, you can think of Stanford University, Harvard University, Duke University, and so forth. They're all named after major donors. They're all pretty good institutions. So I don't think there should be a taint towards it. Uh, a friend of mine uh, used to say the problem with that kind of money is uh, uh, so-called tainted money is they're, they're taint enough. <laughs> so... We, we gave consideration to this at the, the Faculty of Medicine University of Calgary about seven years ago, and we decided that we'd seen other uh, institutions go this way, and we decided to look at the, the marketplace, and we noticed that McMaster University had, had uh, gotten $100 million for its name, UCLA got $200 million and so forth, and we, we decided that we would go forward with this and decided what's the right price, and we set the price at $200 million. That's a tall order, and it's hard to knock on people's doors and ask for that kind of money. And yes. the university, the university president and I went downtown and, and did visit some senior business people, and they thought we should wait for the right opportunity. But they thought our plan uh, made some sense. Well, about 
uh, two years later, just after I finished my, my tenure as dean, uh, the right opportunity did, did, did present. Uh, a local businessman named Jeff Cumming came forward and was prepared to put $100 million forward, which was fantastic, but of course didn't quite meet uh, the bar we'd set at $200 million. But the president was able to then persuade the, the then premier, uh, Alison Redford, to match that, and that's how we got to the $200 million mark. So this is a transformational gift for the Faculty of Medicine, now the Cumming School of Medicine, offer, offers us the opportunity to really break new ground, go in new directions and recruit top-notch talent uh, and, and have even greater success. So I'm very optimistic about the future, and I think this is a big boost. The, the, this, this kind of philanthropy, the first philanthropy you get, does that also help you in recruiting and getting other ones that once you've seen that example that it makes it easier to go out and recruit? I think so. I think people like to support a winner, uh, something they see is going is being successful. Uh, we've had very good for, uh, fortune with uh, philanthropy from the community of Calgary. It's been a tremendously uh, supportive community, and uh, this is obviously the most prominent of gifts, but uh, there have been tremendous other ones. We have seven research institutes uh, in the coming School of Medicine. All seven are named uh, by uh, philanthropists from Calgary. Quite remarkable, really. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, you just drive around the city. You can see it on the outside. You see the buildings. You can see the names, yep. and you know the commitments these people have made. And not just in Calgary, obviously, in other cities across Canada and North America. Uh, as we leave here, as I leave you here for, for the interview, give me one piece of good news in healthcare delivery that you'd like to tell the public about that maybe they don't know. Gosh. Um... There may not be one, but anyhow, I'm okay, sure I'll, no one. I'll tell you what I see as a positive trend right now, which I think is exciting, and that is the increased recognition of the importance and underservice in the area of mental health. I think that's tre tremendous. You, you, you can hardly turn around now without seeing something about mental health, whether it's on television, uh, sponsored by Bell, who've been very active in this area, or by others, or by columnists like Andre Picard writing in the Globe and Mail about it. Uh, there's a tremendous emphasis now on mental health, and that's actually one of our priorities in Airdrie, and I, I think an area we can make real progress with. Well, on that good news, I thank you very much for joining us today, and I really appreciate your time. It's been really a kind of eye-opening. And, uh, and again, thank you for the, 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 the stuff that you've done to, as a citizen of Calgary and looking around at some of the health care, your contribution to it. Thanks, Bruce. A pleasure chatting. You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode has been Dr. Tom Feesby, now the Chief Health Officer of the Airdrie and Area Health Benefits Cooperative in Alberta. Now, don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count and all of our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns and my podcasts and, of course, my poetry on the website as well. Also, I'm appearing three times a week with Jeff Samet on Sirius XM Radio Channel 167, Canada Talks, I'm on at noon Eastern Time, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'll post those conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page as well. Till next time, this is Bruce Dobigan, and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count. Yeah,